This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hi, I'm Jason Rosenbaum, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. This is part two of my conversation with Sarah Kenzior, the St. Louis-based author of The View from Flyover Country and Hiding in Plain Sight. What you're about to hear is the second part of my conversation with Sarah that happened over Twitter Live last week. It primarily features Sarah answering questions from social media. It also gives the listeners a glimpse into Sarah's favorite rock and roll band. So I'm going to start with uh, Matt, vote by mail Murphy. I'd like to hear Sarah's thoughts about the, quote, never Trump Republicans such as Rick Wilson, Jennifer Rubin, Steve Schmidt, Max Boot, etc., especially George Conway, who recently said that Trump is 100 percent insane. Do these pundits and critics help matters at all? I know, Sarah, there's like a isn't there like a, a memed photo of you giving the stink eye to Bill Crystal or something like that? Or am I? Yeah, that I, was right here in St. Louis. That was um, that, that got printed in the Riverfront Times. So maybe Bill Crystal's happy they went out of business. But yeah, um, he was the speaker at an event I did and I was the counterpoint um, to him. He was saying that our institutions would hold up just fine, uh, that, you know, Nancy Pelosi was our hero, which is actually a weird thing for Bill Crystal to be saying. Um, and Trump would, uh, you know, be held in check by Mueller, Pelosi and everybody else. Of course, none of that came to pass. And Bill Crystal's famous for, for getting things wrong. I mean, the never Trump Republicans, it, it's a broad category. You know, these are specific people. Uh, there are some I like more than others. There are some I think are, are actually sincere and are trying, you know, to do the right thing in this time. They have left the Republican Party, most of them. Uh, they they don't want to associate it. They are willing to expose what Trump is doing. And there are others who I think are just, uh, you know, some of them are just hucksters trying to get in on the action. Uh, cable news is very comfortable with these people. They don't reflect, I think, a broad segment of our population at all. But they're an enormous amount of our punditry because the, the cable news and just, you know, that kind of folks in general, they love to convince everybody that somewhere there's a rational Republican Party just waiting to reemerge. It's going to be this beautiful moment. And like, you know, everything happening now is an anomaly instead of the norm. That's not true, unfortunately. Uh, this is the norm. This is what 40 years of, you know, Reagan and, and his successors have led to is Trump. That said, you know, I think George Conway uh, is basically doing an elaborate hoax. I think he's doing a little reality show with his wife. I don't trust anything he's saying. I think if you're really sincere, uh, you don't stay married to Kellyanne Conway and you maybe do a little more than just mock Trump and make him look like a joke. You know, that's a tactic is to try to get people to not take Trump seriously, uh, is to just make him seem buffoonish and clownish and incapable of carrying out true harm, where he's actually a tremendous threat. 
But then there are other so-called never Trump Republicans, like I'd say Evan McMullen is one, who have always from the start, you know, said Trump is a profound threat. Trump is a threat who needs to be stopped. He's linked to Russia. Uh, this is a national security issue. And those folks, I'm glad that they spoke out. You know, the more people who tell the truth, the better. I don't think George Conway uh, is telling the full, the full truth. So sweet Melissa asks, should Elizabeth Warren unsuspend her campaign and run with at Stacey Abrams? The answer is yes. So she answered her own question, but I did want, I know you were a big Elizabeth Warren supporter and I wanted to get your take on her campaign, like what went wrong and what, what you think like the message of her entire bid should be. Yeah, um, well, I was a supporter of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she's the first national politician I think I've ever just come out and endorsed. Uh, I rarely feel that way about a politician. I think she was the right candidate for our time. She had concrete plans uh, to attack the roots of our current crises, which is corruption. She understood national corruption. She understood kleptocracy. She understood how all of these different problems, um, systemic racism, white collar crime, um, you know, lack of educational opportunities, lack of healthcare, how they're all connected. And it's really rare that a mind like that comes along. And it's absolutely shameful, I think, um, you know, what happened to her campaign and her candidacy. I don't put the blame on Warren um, and certainly not on her campaign staff. I put it mostly on the media um, for very skewed coverage. You know, for a while she was rising very steadily. I think, um, you know, she was viewed as a front runner, viewed as a serious candidate. And then she vanished. I mean, in like the most literal way, like there would be polls, like, who do you want to be the president? And they would not put her in there. There would be, you know, all sorts of documents and charts. It was as if she had dropped out. It was as if they were trying to give that message. And I think it's, you know, I'm not saying she's perfect. Every candidate's got their flaws, but they couldn't really find anything to like sink their teeth into. So they just disappeared her um, you know, from from the race. Uh, and I think people didn't get to maybe know her in the way that they did. I also think misogyny played a fact was a factor. I think that's a factor for every female candidate. Um, it was obviously very disappointing to me. What I've always recommended in terms of Biden is that he have a coalition behind him. Uh, you know, he's an elderly man um, and we have a deeply corrupt Republican Party with it that is in charge of unprecedented crises, crises of fascism, of the coronavirus, of all of these things that America has not had to contend with before. And of course, an economic depression that's coming. So Biden needs the strongest team he can get. And Warren should be part of that team. Abrams should be part of that team. But it should be in, you know, expansive uh, coalition effort. I'm very sick of this personality politics. I'm sick of people getting touted as saviors. Like we're just going to have some magical person, whether it's Mueller or Pelosi or Comey or Biden or Bernie or whoever, just come in and sweep our problems away. That's not how anything works in real life. And it's very unhealthy. And one thing I'm kind of expecting, you know, in a very dark way over the next few years is an emergence of cults. You know, we already see personality cults forming around Trump and other politicians, uh, you know, cults that in many ways resemble the cults of Charlie Manson or Jim Jones more than a traditional uh, political cult. But I think we're just going to see people moving to messianic figures as a way to make sense of the coronavirus, of the mass death toll, of climate change, um, and all of these, you know, just unspeakable disasters. Uh, that's what happens when institutions collapse. People, they rally around a figurehead, um, and often that figurehead is a demagogue 
who will take advantage of them. Um, and that's something that I'm afraid to see, you know, in the, the year to come. Jock and Fromm says, why has the New York media, the New Yorker, New York Post, New York Times, failed to uncover Trump's criminal activities and his connections to the criminal world? How far on the road toward an authoritarian state is this country? And will Trump try to postpone the election? That's actually three questions. But I want you to a big part of what you just said, though, was 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 about in an earlier conversation was about how a lot of the things that Trump did was in the New York media. And it didn't really seem to phase his rise to power. I mean, there was a concerted effort in 2015 and 2016 to suppress those prior investigative works about Trump and his criminality, and especially um, his financial dirty deeds that had already been printed throughout the 80s and 90s. There were books that had been written that were pulled out of print. And I actually describe all of this um, in my book, In Hiding in Plain Sight, about people who had you know, authored entire biographies about Trump in 1993, and they were just pulled off uh, by their publisher because under Trump's demand and his little lawyer goon squad. You know, they, they threaten people. They threaten your financial livelihood, your career. They threaten your life, especially if you're talking about his history of uh, sexual assault, his connections to the mafia and his financial crimes. And so, you know, what they did, though, in some cases, sometimes it was the sin of omission, but a lot of times it was just straight propaganda. It was lies. You know, people forget that the New York Times literally partnered with Steve Bannon, you know, white supremacist Steve Bannon, to do Clinton cash, to destroy uh, Hillary Clinton's reputation based on, um, you know, facetious lies. And, you know, I'm not saying Hillary's a saint, but the stuff that the New York Times is printing, the email obsession, you know, we know uh, that there wasn't much to it. We know that they focused on it obsessively, and we know that they never uh, delved deeply into Trump's ties to organized crime, even though they were out there. And I've spoken with some of those older reporters uh, who were like my age in the in the 80s and 90s and were investigating Trump back then. And they were saying, yeah, you know, I, I tried to get articles printed in, in The New York Times. I gave documents to people so that they could research this. I tried to get on cable news. Every time that happened, uh, you know, they would cut me or they would block me or they would threaten me. And so there was a very organized effort um, from elite New York media to suppress the truth about Trump. And it wasn't completely uniform. You know, some pieces got through. For whatever reason, the Daily Beast turned out uh, quite a few good investigatory pieces of Trump. On one of them, Michael Cohen uh, threatened to uh, destroy the reporter. They got that on tape. Um, you know, they did the same thing with Jeffrey Epstein. But I mean, that's an example right there. Like in November 2016, there was supposed to be a, pre a press conference where a woman, uh, you know, was going to accuse Trump, she already had in court, of raping her when she was 13 years old. And this was a girl who had been procured by Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell and their pedophile sex trafficking operation that was linked to the rich and powerful throughout the world. So that's an enormous story. And that press conference got canceled because they threatened to kill uh, the lawyer and the victim. Um, and then I, I'm not exactly sure what happened to her, but they, you know, they silenced her. But I kept thinking, you know, this is the, the Republican nominee. This is a few days from the election. Like, aren't you going to cover this? Aren't you going to take this seriously? You've been taking all these trivial stories about Hillary Clinton seriously, you know, about Anthony Weiner and her laptop and whatnot. You're not going to look 
at Trump's documented connection to Jeffrey Epstein and you're not going to look at a 13-year-old girl who says she was raped by him. And then I realized that there's just this whole realm of stories that are viewed as untouchable. And, you know, I get why people are afraid for their lives. Like, my life is frequently threatened because I talk about this and it's probably going to get threatened because I'm having this conversation right now. And I'm grateful for those reporters who did continue reporting on this after Trump came into office, like Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald, who did, um, you know, those great Epstein investigations. But... Yeah, um, it, it's a disaster. They dug their own grave in terms of media freedom and they threw us all in it. Um, and in terms of how far we are on the road to authoritarianism, I've been asked that every year since 2016 and every year we're further along. But I'm most afraid now, um, and it's in part because of coronavirus, because they have a perfect weapon. They have us you know, unable to leave our homes because there is a legitimate threat to public health. Uh, they have us unable to protest. They have us struggling to vote, as we saw today in Wisconsin. It's an ideal scenario uh, for an autocrat. And of course, they're going to exploit it. You know, you already see Barr wanting to extend the powers of the Department of Justice to hold people for no reason, to hold them indefinitely, um, you know, to basically give give full power uh, to Trump and his cronies and not even keep up the facade of a democracy. And I just want to say it took a lot of people to get to that place. It took a lot of people to build those alliances over, year, over years to suppress the truth, to butter up the media, to get them to cover it up and play along. And it is depressing as hell to me to see all the paths in the road that we could have taken where maybe this would have ended differently if people had just pushed hard for accountability, if they'd held their feet to the fire, if they'd refused to surrender in advance. Um, it's unfortunately not what they did. Another question on the on the media from No Trump for me. Fox News must be defeated if there's any chance in November. This should have been a top priority after 2016. Is it too late? Could sponsor boycotts uh, for defaming people like Vindman help? I, I guess that that's been kind of a common question, I guess, since like the Bush administration of how you kind of combat the power of Fox News, which is an interesting question, because if you watch the Republican primaries in 2016, Fox News may have been like the most aggressive network against Trump. Yeah, I mean, Fox News was basically created after Watergate. It was dreamt up so that, you know, there would be, should there be another Nixon-like situation, Nixon would not actually be able to be impeached because there would be a massive propaganda apparatus surrounding him. And the Republicans became, you know, very organized in multiple respects in this front. They became linked with evangelical movements. Uh, they built a media empire. They had Reagan and his policies. They had Thatcher abroad etc. Um, Fox News has gotten much worse. Uh, basically, since Obama was elected, you know, what was more of a tacit racism became, you know, an extremely overt racism, and they became more and more, um, you know, paranoid, more mired in conspiracy theories. But the real switch came uh, with Trump, you know, now it reminds me of the state media I see in dictatorships. And I spent a long time studying the media um, of former Soviet dictatorships, just the worshipfulness, the utter lack of debate, the just the repetition of whatever the official uh, party line is. Because you're right, initially when Trump was running, 
they put up a bit of a, an effort against him. Um, I don't think, you know, all of them were necessarily clued in on the plot. I think that's still true of the Republican Party now. They know that there's a lot of dirty business at hand. You know, that's what happens when you make Michael Cohen your deputy finance chairman for your party. Um, but I don't think that everybody is in this inner circle uh, that Trump dwells in. However, I do think that the people behind Fox News do. I think Roger Ailes, you know, uh, the Murdoch family, they were key figures in this. I, I feel, you know, to some degree sorry for the people who've been brainwashed by Fox because Fox puts out often very compelling programming, you know, it tapped into the fear of a post 9-11 America where we are afraid we're going to be attacked at any moment. It tapped into the fear that came after the recession and it gave it an enemy. It was the wrong enemy. You know, they scapegoated immigrants. Uh, they scapegoated anybody who wasn't white. They scapegoated, you know, all Democrats and liberals and put this, you know, elaborate veneer of uh, evil, you know, to anyone who just rubs them the wrong way. Um, and I think a lot of people just became kind of part of that. It's, it's a cult making apparatus. It, it creates a, you know, a group movement. It's more than just a network in that respect. Um, you know, we've seen people leave it. We saw Shepard Smith go. Uh, strangely, we've seen the Twitter of Fox stop. I, I've always wondered what's up with that. They just completely stopped tweeting. And it's such an effective propaganda tool. It's obviously Trump's favorite propaganda tool. Like, why are they not on here anymore? I feel like there's a story there uh, that folks should investigate that they haven't. But then you have things that are really unsavory, like Sean Hannity uh, being tied to Michael Cohen, being tied to Kremlin plots. Like, why is he still on the air? Why do people treat that like it's a normal thing? Like it's one thing to be hyper-partisan and vindictive. We're used to that. We're Americans. That's how a lot of people behave. It's another thing to be linked to a Kremlin treason plot and then just get on TV like everything is, you know, fine and normal and no one ever asks you about it. They're like, you know, hey, why were you like the third guy that was Michael Cohen's contact? Like, what, what were you doing? Like, that's something that I find very strange is how the media, you know, the ones in New York and D.C., like how they treat each other, where like the chumminess, the insularity, the cliquishness, it overrides even uh, big stories, stories about crime, stories about sexual assault, stories about treason. I mean, these are like blockbuster stories. They won't investigate them because it's their own little narrow circle of elites. And so it falls to people like you and me, Jason, out in Missouri to get to the bottom of everything, unfortunately. We'll be right back after this quick break with my conversation with Sarah Kenzior. So we got a couple of questions about coronavirus. I'm gonna read one from Caroline Fan, um, who wanted me to ask you about the rise of white supremacists and xenophobia around COVID and the acceleration portion of the white supremacist movement. She particularly pointed to that guy in Kansas City, Missouri, who wanted to car bomb the hospital. And I, I guess there's evidence that he was part of the white supremacist movement. Obviously, that's been a big story since Trump got elected, kind of the brazenness of white supremacy. So I want you to field Caroline's question about like where they are in this COVID universe, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's a frightening story. And of course, it's frightening that it, it came out of our state. 
um, you know, white supremacist groups, extremist groups uh, had been on the rise since 2008. You know, I was worried about this in 2016. There was a, a fleeting moment where I did think that Trump could maybe lose. Um, and I thought if he did lose, that there was going to be a militia style reaction to that loss coming from a lot of these white supremacists. This was in part because, uh, you know, once again, I believe, actually, I think it was Kansas, there was a group of uh, white supremacists who were going to blow up an apartment building primarily uh, inhabited by Somali immigrants. And they were stopped in time by the FBI. And they were doing that in the name of Trump. And we've also seen things like the MAGA bomber, uh, you know, who went around in his van, you know, with his, his list of targets of people he wanted to annihilate. We're seeing a lot of extremism. Um, and we're also seeing, I, I don't know, like, some of the coverage of this is very good. Uh, it does delve into you know, the groups and the threats that they pose. What I don't like seeing, and I've seen quite a bit of in the last few years, is this whitewashing and soft peddling of what are essentially neo-Nazi movements. You know, we get these little profiles in places like the New York Times about what are the Nazis wearing or what do the Nazis like to watch on TV? Or we get op-eds that are in favor of uh, eugenics and we get op-eds that are praising Stephen Miller, who's, you know, literally uh, putting, you know, kids from Central America into concentration camps at the border. All of this is part of one big story. You know, these fringe groups that appear to, to exist in isolation, people will call them a lone wolf, but, you know, they're part of a pack uh, and they hear their whistle from their master and, and they go into action. And so what scares me is this convergence between, uh, you know, these, these cells of isolated, violent white supremacists and the fact that our government encourages this behavior, it countenances this behavior. You know, I remember back in 2016 when David Duke endorsed Trump and Trump, you know, it, it took him a long time and a lot of pressure for him to just criticize that endorsement. I, and it was very, you know, sort of timid. He was basically like, oh, I, I don't like him or, you know, something very mild where it should have been the easiest thing in the world. And I remember people saying like, what kind of person doesn't instantly denounce David Duke? Like, how did we get to this point? And that was 2016. And that should have been a blaring sign of what Trump was about. You know, another sign was, of course, his whole life of, you know, getting sued for racial discrimination and wanting to execute the Central Park Five and other things. But this was serious. And I think that because our media makeup is so overwhelmingly white, that people were not thinking, oh, this could happen to me, this could happen to my family. Um, you know, I mean, some of them were, some were compassionate in that way, but many, I think we're just missing the big picture. Like, I don't know what goes in your mind when you're writing a puff piece about a Nazi and talking about who's, what he's wearing instead of the fact that he wants to commit genocide. I would think that the genocide would be at the forefront of the story, but uh, unfortunately that, that is not how many publications have chosen to operate. Disco Burger asks, is there anything we as citizens can do day to day to help combat coronavirus besides the obvious tips like staying home? Should we flood representatives phones to keep them accountable? Dems are doing a bad job right now and I can't stand it. So you mentioned before when we were talking about coronavirus, like the obvious thing is to stay home and, you know, not go to places to contaminate. But is there anything else that can be done from a political level? 
Um, I think pushing for transparency is always good. Uh, I think, you know, our representatives are in a genuinely difficult situation. They can't get together uh, in person, you know, at least not in the numbers that they used to be able to. They've had to reevaluate and redo um, all of their daily activities the same way everybody else has. Um, I think that some are trying their best. I think others are really not uh, trying hard enough, Mike Parson. Um, and so, you know, I, I do encourage people to continue to, con to contact your representative anyway, even knowing you may not get a response because that's your right as a citizen. They are here to represent you. Um, but, you know, it's tough. This is a time where we may have to depend on our, our local communities, our neighbors, on other networks of support. And that doesn't mean that you give your government a pass um, for not taking care of you, uh, but that, you know, it's, it's just a practicality of daily life. One thing that I really don't like seeing, and, you know, and I think I mentioned this before, is this narrative of red and blue states where they're trying to put out this whole thing of, you know, Trump is trying to punish the blue states, true. Um, and he's just going to shower the red states with aid. I mean, like last year when the rivers flooded, like it took forever to get any kind of disaster aid. They certainly never express any sympathy or empathy to, to actual people in quote unquote red states. They like to have pawns to use at the rallies. They like to have human beings as backdrops uh, for their own you know, financial or political gains, but they don't care what, what actually happens to us on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think everyone should know that we are all in it together as Americans. No state is being treated well, with maybe the exception of Florida, and that's because Mar-a-Lago is in Florida. Like there isn't a reason besides that. And I think because local media is gutted, we often don't know the degree of harm that quote unquote red states are experiencing. Like in a lot of rural regions of Missouri, for example, there aren't hospitals. You know, there, there's been a decline in hospitals steadily over years. And that's true in other states as well. So it's not like some states are doing great with this and others are obviously suffering, you know, like New York City is clearly suffering. Um, everyone is suffering and it's just a matter of degree. But it's not a matter of, unfortunately, you know, some states getting great aid and others, you know, getting nothing. We're really all not getting what we should. You know, everybody should be able to get medical equipment, protective equipment, enough staff. And instead, Trump treats us like a game show where he wants to pit states against each other and pit the residents each other and, you know, have them fight literally to the death. It's the Hunger Games. Um, and that's a frightening thing. And so I encourage everybody to resist these kind of uh, simple characterizations. And if you hear something about a quote unquote red state or a region of a quote blue state that maybe isn't covered very much in the news, think twice before you take that article seriously. You know, try to see if you can find like the website of an official who actually lives there that may be putting out accurate information because there's a lot of rumors, a lot of gossip, a lot of conspiracy theories that are just out there to try to get people to hate each other. Uh, and we need to uh, resist being pulled down that road. A couple more questions from one from Gary Kopp. Sarah, thanks for being the voice of reason from St. Louis. Do you have any thoughts on how Americans can be better educated on how to identify authoritarian candidates? And he put in parentheses and mental disorders in the future, as I believe Germany did after World War II. Yeah, I mean, Germany was much more prepared for our current era. I went to Gießen in Germany in 2017 and spoke to college students. 
And it was the first place I went where people weren't asking me the questions as somebody who'd studied authoritarian states for a long time. They were informing me. They were teaching me uh, because, you know, their ancestors had lived through this experience, but also because they were taught it in school. And it was part of their curriculum. Um, this was not the case in America. I think, you know, for a long time, people believed that authoritarianism is something that could only happen in foreign countries, that America was exceptional, America was immune. That clearly wasn't true, or we wouldn't have had slavery, the genocide of Native Americans, uh, internment camps during World War II for, for Japanese Americans. We have had state-sanctioned autocratic measures, uh, you know, from our very beginnings as a country, and now they're just simply more expansive. Um, you know, they are encompassing the broader part um, of our population. So what I do encourage people to do uh, is to read history, you know, read the history of the United States, um, including these histories of state-sanctioned atrocities, and read international history because you will recognize the parallels. Uh, dictators follow a playbook. You know, a lot of people are like, you know, wow, Sarah, like, how'd you see that coming? Occasionally it's because Trump literally announced he was going to do it and no one took him seriously, apparently, but me. But a lot of times it's because I've seen this before. I've seen it in Uzbekistan. I've seen it in Turkmenistan. I saw it throughout Soviet history. I saw it with Hitler. I saw it with Milosevic. Um, they have a lot of the same moves. and. Honestly, like if you're trying to convince somebody of the danger of the Trump administration and they're reluctant to believe you, I think uh, teaching them history, giving them books to read is a good idea. It's less pedantic. It's less like up in your face, like here, believe me, learn this. I think when people come to these conclusions through their own critical thinking, and I do think everyone is capable of that, you know, there's this idea that some people are just lost and, you know, they'll never bother with it. I really don't believe that. I've seen people change their minds all the time throughout this administration. Um, but, you know, getting there yourself um, is the way I think it sticks with you versus sort of being told, uh, you know, what to say or, or think or believe. This is from Danielle Miller. Any advice for us starting out just documenting everything going on and putting it into our own collective? Any tips? And that, that's a really great question because I think a lot of people like right now are probably doing a lot of writing about how they're feeling. Um, I certainly am. But I, I, I would actually be personally interested in the answer to this question, too, because I think a lot of people may read, especially the, the first part of your book, the introduction, and may be thinking, well, I want to do that, do exactly what Sarah Kenzier is doing. You don't want to do it. On. <laughs> um, but, but in terms of writing things down, in terms of writing your observations of life. Um, yeah, I absolutely recommend that now, especially because we're losing more than ever our sense of time. And I talk in the book about that loss of time, which is so common when you live in a country that's transitioning from a democracy to an autocracy, and you're getting this barrage of propaganda. But now we have an even greater loss of time where we literally don't know what day it is because we're always in our homes, because everything changes and nothing changes simultaneously. And a way to just sort of keep your own bearings and to keep in touch with your emotions and to sometimes you know, just help yourself from being emotionally overwhelmed is to, to write that down, to write down your observations of life and also to be able to look back at those writings and recognize how things are changing and, you know, and how you perhaps have changed with them. 
I mean, this is a test for us. I feel like this is a different sort of test than fighting um, authoritarianism. I feel like there was a lot of denial uh, that went on in the last four years where people refused to recognize the threat. I think we all recognize the threat of coronavirus. And I think the majority of us have the same horrified, uh, traumatized reaction to things like mass deaths uh, in various regions of our country. You know, I think we're all grieving together. Um, and that's a lot to process. But yeah, I definitely recommend people write this down. And to also not like worry about, oh, is it worth it to do this? Or what is this for? Or will this help me professionally? I feel like people are sometimes trained to think that if something's not making money, or if it's not serving some big, broad professional end, you know, that it's not worth it. Or they think, oh, well, I'm uneducated. I shouldn't be writing. Everybody has something to contribute. And it's your own story. And I think it can probably provide you um, some solace and some comfort in a difficult time. And if that's the case, uh, you know, then you should certainly go for it. Okay. As I just mentioned and alluded to in the last question, I promised Sarah that in the last five minutes or so, since we've talked for about an hour and 20 minutes about some really disturbing and unnerving topics, we would we'd go out on a little bit of a happier note because I really wanted to talk with you about Guns and Roses. That's something about your love of Guns and Roses that a lot of people have caught on to. And I want you to explain why you think this band is so good. And were you surprised that Axel and Slash finally reconciled after it seemed like there was no way in hell those two were ever going to go on a tour and make a bajillion dollars together? Yeah, I mean, that was one of like the happiest moments of my life, honestly, was that concert on July 27, 2017, where I saw Guns N' Roses live. Finally, for the first time in my life, um, you know, having waited uh, since, you know, I was like a 10 year old kid and it's my favorite band, um, you know, and I love them so much. And it was an amazing concert. And the only days that ever like trumped that were the days I gave birth. It's like, you know, the two children, then GNR, and then I guess like my wedding or something. But anyway, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be a writer if it weren't for, for Guns N' Roses. I, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, it's hard for me to explain it. I feel like it's like if you're a deeply religious person and someone's asking you about your most cherished spiritual beliefs, like how do you articulate that um, to the world? But but, you know, uh, they're a fantastic band. I saw them again this summer um, in Kentucky. I, I was really, you know, psyched about that. But it has given this whole era a dreamlike quality. You know, my, my husband is going to get me kicked out of St. Louis. He's a Cubs fan, grew up in Chicago. And he's always kind of wondering in this guilt-ridden way, did the Cubs winning a series back in 2016, did that set us off on some dark, horrible parallel timeline in which all these atrocities happened, but I got to finally see the Cubs win. And sometimes I feel that way about GNR reuniting and then coming to St. Louis, St. Louis of Bob McCullough fame, St. Louis of St. Louis sucks fame for Axel getting arrested. Like it's incredible that, that we got to see that show, you know, and it was a great moment. And then also last year, um, Duff McKagan, the basis for Guns N' Roses, put out an album that was partially inspired by my book, The View from Flyover Country. And so like, imagine that, like if you had told me when I was 12 years old, you know, hardcore GNR fan, just like I am right now at, uh, you know, the age that I'm at. Um, like if somebody had told me Duff someday <laughs> is going to write an album that's based in part on your best selling book. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't go past those dreams. And so on those dark days I have where I'm like, is this it for me? Is this the end? I think, well, you know, I, I did get a lot out of life. Like I, I wrote a book that is, you know, beloved. I got to see GNR live. 
Duff made an album based on my book. I have two wonderful children. I've gotten to travel around the world. Like I've gotten to, you know, I've gotten a lot of, out of life. Life is a good thing. And so I try to comfort myself with that um, in dark moments. But anyway, my main point is GNR rules. Anyone who says they're not the best band in the world is lying. Um, that's all I gotta say.